This morning I want to talk about Israel as they're coming out of Egypt in preparation to um, look at some things that were true of the man Caleb who came with Joshua into the Promised Land finally. And I just want to recount the story to you to refresh your mind of what happened with Israel as they were coming from Egypt. If you remember, Joseph gave them instructions. He said, you're going to leave here someday. It's going to be 400 years, but you're going to leave here. I want you to take my bones with you and take them to the promised land. And so with Moses, when Israel left Egypt, they took the bones of Joseph and they went out. They crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. God destroyed the armies of Pharaoh in the sea. They went on to Mount Sinai. There they received the law. They went on from that place to the gateway into the promised land. And that's what we're going to take up this morning with our concentration on the story. When they arrive in Numbers 13 at the gate to the promised land, God speaks to Moses and He says, Moses, I want you to pick out leaders, one from each of the tribes of Israel, and I want you to send them into the promised land to spy it out. So Moses chooses 12 men to send into the promised land. Two of the 12 we're most familiar with are Joshua and Caleb. And so these men go into the promised land. Moses gives them a charge. He says, I want you to go and I want you to, to look at the cities. I want you to look at the inhabitants, see what kind of people they're like. What kind of things are there? What kind of, uh, what kind of trees grow there? What kind of produce will you find there? I want you to find out everything you can find out about this land that we're supposed to go in and possess. And so the 12 men go in and they take 40 days of spying and they spy out the land and they find the kind of people that are there. There There's some big people there. There's some descendants of giants there. There's some big cities there that are fortified. There's some good ground. There's some beautiful, beautiful fruits and vegetables there. Some great produce. They find a a cluster of grapes that they think will be a good example. And it's a big cluster of grapes, so large, in fact, that they get a, a pole and they hang the cluster of grapes in the middle and one man carries it from the front, one man carries it from behind. So they're carrying this big cluster of grapes, if you can imagine. And they bring some fruits and they bring the grapes back to Moses and back to the people of Israel. And when they arrive back, they give the initial report. Well, this is what it was like there. There were... There were some big cities, there were some, some big people, some giants, some descendants of Anak. There are some big guys there. And there's some really good produce. Look at this fruit that we've brought back. Look at these grapes that we've brought back and these other fruits we've brought back. It's really nice. At that point, Caleb speaks up and, and he says, let's do it. Let's go take it. God has given it to us. Let's go. So Caleb is trying to get the people excited about going into the land and taking it for the Lord. Immediately, though, ten of the other spies speak up. And they say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Those city walls were tall. And those people, they were big. They were strong. We felt like grasshoppers when we were around them. And so they said, I don't think we should do it. I don't think we should... I don't think we should try to do what, what God has said we should do because it's, it's just too, too much. And so the congregation lifted up their voices and they cried and they wept. 
And they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they said, they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? It was so comfortable there. It's kind of their mantra ever since they left. This is what they wanted to say every so many miles. Why did we ever leave Egypt? And here's another opportunity. Here's another opportunity for them. Why did we ever leave Egypt? It was so nice there. I know. Let's oust Moses and Aaron. Let's elect somebody else to be our leader who will take us back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on the ground in front of them. And Joshua and Caleb said, Joshua and Caleb, those two spies that gave a good report, they tore their clothes. They said, no, don't do this thing. Repent of this sin. God will give us this land. Don't do this. Don't act this way. And the people got more angry. And they started looking around on the ground for stones because they thought this would be a good time to kill Joshua and Caleb. Because they, we don't like what they're saying. We want somebody else. Well, at that point, God had had enough. And he just stepped in. He said, I'm going to kill them all. I'm sick of them. I'm just going to kill them all. Watch out. And then Moses does what he does so often. He intercedes for the people. And he comes to God and he says, God, don't kill them all. Don't kill them all. Remember your reputation among the nations. And he steps in and he says, God, no, don't do it. And God says, okay, I won't kill them. But this is what I will do. I will make them wander for as many years in the wilderness as the spies went in to spy out the land. So there were 40 days. There's going to be 40 years of wandering. And every man, every soldier that's older than 20 years old, he will die in that 40 years, except for Caleb and Joshua. And he particularly notes Caleb because Caleb, he said, had a different spirit than everybody else. He believed God. And so what happens? God pronounces that on Israel. And what do the people do? Oh, we're sorry. We're sorry. We'll go up tomorrow morning and take on the Canaanites. And what does Moses say? Well, two wrongs won't make a right. You're not going to win. The ark and the Lord aren't going with you. You're going to fail. And sure enough, they went up. They fought a little bit. The Canaanites just beat them up badly, killed many of them. They come running back, licking their wounds, and off they go into the wilderness for 40 years. Now we have a little intermission, a 40-year intermission, 40 years of wandering. And we come to Joshua chapter 14. In the 40 years, everyone, all the males over 20 years old from that generation have died, except for Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two that are, that are surviving. We come to Joshua chapter 14, and we see that Israel at this point has been coming into the promised land. They've been taking the promised land. There's been a lot of fighting. And at this point, we pick up again with the story of Caleb. And Caleb was 40 when he went to spy out the land. He's been 40 years and some change in fighting since he got back from spying out the land. So he's 85. And he comes to Joshua, 85 years old, and he says, I want that which God promised to me. It's time for my tribe now. Give me the land God has promised to me. And Joshua says, you take this land. Caleb went in, he took the land, and he dwelt there. Now, I told you that story real quickly because I wanted it all familiar in your mind. I want us to look at some observations about Caleb this morning and note some things about him, particularly 
as they are connected to him being a man, being a leader, being a patriarch, being a father. This is Father's Day. There are going to be things for mothers and children to glean from this. Particularly at the end, I'm going to make some comments, but I'm focusing mostly on fathers and men, potential fathers, this morning. So listen to me. First of all, Caleb was a leader in his family. There was no doubt as to his leadership because the men who were picked as spies were all leaders. The Bible even tells us that much, that they were all leaders in their tribes. There was no doubt. He w- it was recognizable. His skills were there. It was clear. And so this morning I want us to think about ourselves, men, and how we are as leaders in our families, in our tribes, in our church. Is it recognizable to people? Is your leadership recognizable to those around you? Do they see it? Is it automatic? Do they understand that you're a man who has authority or who is under authority? And they can see clearly that you understand your place in leadership and that you lead your family. In our culture, this is a difficult concept. I was looking at two commercials on YouTube. You all know YouTube, right? I'm not endorsing you to look at YouTube. But I saw two commercials on YouTube about this particular subject matter. One was a Cadillac automobile commercial from 1985, and one was a Cadillac automobile commercial from the present. In the Cadillac automobile commercial from 1985, they were proposing that you could buy their car and it had a six-year, 60,000-mile warranty, right? And that was something. I remember when I was younger, a car getting 100,000 miles was something. Now, if they don't get 200, you're, you're pretty angry with it, you know? But in this commercial in 1985, you have a man driving down the road and he's driving his Cadillac. And it's a winding road, and it's got some hills. And this guy's driving along. He's in his command center. He's driving his car. He's going down the road. He's taking charge of that road. He's a strong-looking man going down the road, a rugged kind of cowboy-looking man going down the road, right? Pressing the buttons, turning on the air. Come up to today. Cadillac automobile commercial. There's one entitled khaki, like the khaki pants, right? Commercial starts, elevator door opens on an on a office building floor. Power woman walks out of, the, out of the elevator. She's strutting. She's powerful. Every man on the floor is wearing khaki pants and like an arrow button-down shirt, Right? And they're all incompetent. They're all caught in scenes of incompetence as she walks by them. And as they see her, their incompetence is glaring as they're eating their donut or whatever they're doing. Right? It seems in the commercial that she's, on, she's a peer with them, but she's the power one in the group. She's the leader. The end of the commercial, she gets back on the elevator. One of the khaki men is standing by her. He's kind of nervously noticing that he's standing by Power Woman, and he's afraid, and his, his ink pen's in his pocket. They zoom in on the ink pen, and suddenly the ink just gives away and bleeds all over his shirt. And it makes you think he's wet himself. That's what you think about. He's wet himself because he's so afraid of being around Power Woman. 1985 Cadillac commercial, 2007 Cadillac commercial. Is it difficult in our culture to be a man and take leadership? Is it foreign to our, to our culture to see men take leadership today? 
Are we destroying ourselves with this? Men, we are called to be leaders in our families. Our leadership or lack thereof will be noticeable by people around us. We can't take our cue from the culture. The culture doesn't know the truth. The culture is deceived. We must take our cue from God. We must lead our families. This is obedience to God, and it's health to the ones that we love. You maybe need to get started somehow. I don't know how you get started leading your family. There's so many things a leader must do in his family spiritually. Read the Bible with your family. Have a time and read the Bible and say some prayers together. If you're not disciplining your children, fathers, discipline your children's children. If you don't discipline your children, the Bible says you don't really love them. Right? Love your family. Provide for them. Provide leadership to your wife and lead her. Caleb was a leader. Caleb was a man under authority. All the spies, when Moses approached them, he said, I want you to do this. And you know what they said? Yes, sir. We'll do it. And they went and they spied out the land. They were men under authority. Can you imagine what they would have said? Well, I don't know. It's hard to leave my family. It's hard to leave my family. It's hard to get out of this place. It's, it's nice here. I got the tent all set the way I like it. There's no stones under the, you know, it's just nice. Or they might argue with Moses. Today we might argue with him. We'd say, Moses, we don't want to look at the fruit. It's gold we want. Let's find out about the gold and the copper deposits that are there. That's what we need to know. Or we just say, send somebody else. We don't want to go. We are all under authority and our lives should demonstrate our submission to authority. And sometimes we don't like to submit. When Annie and I moved into the house we're living in now, it wasn't annexed in the city of Toledo. And so I engaged a garbage collection guy, right? And then we got annexed in the city of Toledo. And then I got a letter from the city of Toledo. You can't have this garbage collection guy pick up your garbage. Oh, okay. So what does it cost me to have my garbage picked up by the city of Toledo? Well, you have to pay your taxes for that to get done. And of course, on top of that, you have to buy the bag tag of $2 a bag, right? So I started figuring our garbage production. This guy, this guy would take unlimited garbage for half the price that the city of Toledo would take my garbage, whatever it is, okay? And we did the uh, recycle thing, so you know. All right? We do that. So I wrote the city a letter. I said, you know, I entertain a lot of people. We produce a lot of garbage. I'd like to be exempt. I sent it to the garbage board. And I said, would you exempt us? I got a letter back. No. I was frustrated, very frustrated. You know, I feel like, why does they have to control my garbage? And I went to Tim in my frustration. I said, Tim, Tim, if you don't know, is the senior pastor of the church. I went to Tim in my frustration. I said, Tim, I don't want them to control my garbage. It costs more for me. I don't like that extra $10 I have to pay a month, plus my taxes. I'm, you know, Tim said, Dave, you're a man under authority. 
Sometimes you have to live as a man under authority. There are sometimes when we can say no to the, the, the governing authorities when, when their counsel or their laws bring us into conflict with God's law. But this garbage law doesn't bring me into conflict with God's law. It's just annoying. <laughs> right? I'm a man under authority. I have to be under authority. Caleb was a man under authority. We have to be an example of submission to those in authority over us. Or to those, we have to be in submission to those in authority over us so that we can be example to those whom we have authority over. Submission to authority is evidence of faith in God. Caleb was a man under authority. Caleb was a believing leader in Israel, a man of faith. Numbers 13.30 says that when Caleb quieted the people, Caleb then quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of the land, for we will surely overcome it. What was Caleb? He was the one that came back from spying out the land. And then what does he do? He brings the motion to the floor. You know, they give the preliminary report. And then Caleb takes leadership. And he says, I make a motion. Let's go take the land. Belief that attains to the level of trust in God is visible. It's noticeable. It's measurable against opposition. You can demonstrate it. Caleb demonstrated it. He took the lead. He didn't just stop with the lead there. He continued with the lead, even when they started fighting back. And you got, you got to know that these guys coming back from the land, they weren't talking about that, what they were going to report, right? Forty days. Forty days. You think they didn't say, well, you know, there was no conversation? You think Caleb didn't know that this guy over here was kind of quivering about how big the people were in the country? He knew. He knew what kind of opposition he was going to face. But he was a believing man. First John 3.21 Beloved, if our, hearts, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in them. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Men, believe. Believe. Keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. I think if you haven't heard it, if you didn't hear it last week, get on the internet and give a re-listen to Tim's sermon from last week from Ezra and Nehemiah about Ezra not accepting the help of God's enemies. And how Ezra had to believe God right then at that moment. It was fantastic. Listen to it. It's a good word from the Lord. Caleb was a believing leader in Israel. Caleb was a pleading evangelist. He was a pleading evangelist. The people heard the report. They started speaking against Moses and Aaron. They started saying, let's elect somebody else. Caleb and Joshua tear their clothes. They say, don't do this wicked thing. Don't rebel against the Lord. He will surely give us the land. Don't do this. You know, this, this event becomes such a watershed. It, 
It carries over into the New Testament and it's talked about. It's repeated in the New Testament this, this time with Caleb as he's pleading and as God tells them to do what they, what they refuse to do. In Hebrews 3.8, we have the account from the book of Hebrews of this event recounted to the New Testament believers and they're told, do not harden your hearts as they did in that day when they rebelled. Do not turn away from the living God. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us the same thing Caleb was telling the Israelites. Don't do it. Don't harden your hearts against God. Don't turn away from Him. Men, we have to plead with our families. We have to plead with our fellow church members, with our neighbors, with our co-workers not to rebel against God. Plead with them. Tear our clothes. Rush out into the crowd. And when we do, you know what's going to happen. They're going to start looking for stones. Because that's what happened with Caleb and Joshua. And a lot of people are going to want us shut up. Made quiet. But the only way our family members and our friends and our co-workers and our fellow believers, fellow participants in the church will hear the gospel and will be saved from their wickedness and their rebellion is if we plead with them by giving them the message of God's law and by calling them to obedience. I'm concerned about the church in America. I feel like in some ways we're right there at the, at the entrance to something. Not the promised land, but the beginning of something. And I'm concerned that we, we older people don't have the appetite for it. For obeying God and fighting His battles. God will get the job done. But I would much rather be obedient now than die in the wilderness. And I'd rather, I'd rather see the land taken with my son and my grandson than die and have them take it without me and be cast aside. Caleb preached for men to repent. He called them to repent. Caleb was blessed by God. Numbers twenty four or Numbers fourteen twenty four. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. You know, this should put us in mind of other verses where we are told that God will speak favorable pronouncements over us at certain places. Second Timothy 2, a workman who is approved by God. Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter. Well done, good and faithful slave. 
you were faithful in a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Matthew 25:34. Come, you blessed of my Father. You blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We should seek our Creator and Heavenly Father, and we should desire His favorable pronouncement over our lives. Men, we should desire that. Caleb got that. He got that. He was blessed by God. Caleb was a sharer in the sufferings of others. He was a sharer in the sufferings of others. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that the Caleb and Joshua left the doorway to the promised land, turned and walked into the wilderness, spent 40 years burying people? They buried everybody older than them. They buried everyone 20 years younger than them and up. They shared in those sufferings. They had to walk all those miles. They had to carry all their stuff. They had to go all that way. Men, we are called to share in the sufferings of others. Sometimes with our family members. Sometimes in conditions that are outside of our control. We have to share in their sufferings. And it takes our lives. And God calls us to doing that. You guys are carrying a lot with two fathers that are ailing and a sister. Sharing in the suffering. Sometimes we share in sufferings like Caleb had to of people who sin. Can you think of these churches where the pastor or the elders commit some grievous sin, public sin, and who shares in the sufferings of the sin? The church does, right? The church has to go through all the sufferings of the pastor or the elders. And the reverse is true, right? Do you think your pastor and elders ever have to share in the humiliation of your sins and the suffering you incur from them? Do they? Absolutely. But we're called to do this. Men, share in the sufferings. Be strong. Be faithful. Caleb was faithful. Caleb was a victorious warrior. He was a victorious warrior. Eighty-five years old. Clearly the reigning patriarch of the tribe of Judah, because everybody else was no older than 60 of the men, right? So he's clearly the guy. He's the go-to guy in the tribe of Judah, I would say. In all of Israel, there was only one man that was his age. And that was Joshua. So what does Caleb do? He goes to Joshua and he says, I'm as strong today as I was the day I went and spied out the land. I'm as strong for battle. I can go out to war. I can come in. My arm is strong. Give me that which God promised to me all of those years ago. Let me have that. I want it. It was a promise to me. And, and Joshua says, yes, you take, uh, you take the Hebron and that area up there for, for, uh, for Judah. Go ahead, do it. Well, who was in that area? Do you know? Do you remember who the spies were afraid of? 
when they came back from spying out the land? There are big people there. There are descendants of Anak there. There's some big descendants of Anak there, big ones. Yeah, big guys. Do you know when, when Caleb went to Joshua, who he, what piece of ground he particularly wanted? I want that piece right there at Hebron. That's where all the descendants of Anak live. Can you imagine? Do you think all the time he was wandering in the wilderness, he was, he was just thinking, someday, someday, I'm going to oust those guys. Someday, I'm going to fulfill what the Lord has promised to me. Someday. And he kept going and going. And as soon as he gets back, and as soon as it's his turn to have his land that God has promised, that's the piece of ground he asks for. He drove them out. He drove them out. Was that the only place Caleb's battles were fought? Is that the only time Caleb fought a battle? It's said at the very beginning of the narrative that he was chosen an obvious leader among his people. You don't think he fought battles to be a leader among his people? It says as we go through the narrative that he went into the land and did the work that God had called him to do and he came back and he reported to Israel and they, and they wanted to kill him. And he didn't cave. He fought all the harder. And then he walked in the wilderness suffering, carrying the load and burying his friends. And then he came back to the promised land. And all the way from the gate on, they fought. And then when it got to be his turn for his piece of ground, he fought. And he ousted them. Do you think he stopped there? You think he said, you know what? I'm 86 now. I'm going to retire. Collect my pension. You know, all these kids have been paying in. I'm the only guy this age. I'll just collect my pension. It's going to be nice. It's going to be sweet. You know, I think about Caleb and I think, you know, he was probably buried with his sword in his hand. And that's how we should think of ourselves men. We're going to fight and it's not going to be a fight that's localized in a, in a certain time in our lives. We're at war and somebody wants to destroy our souls, the souls of our families, the souls of our friends, the souls of our church, the souls of, our, of the people in our community, the souls of the children in Africa. Somebody wants to destroy all of those. And we are at war. And it's not going to stop with this age time in our lives. Now, when I'm 45, it's not going to stop now. And when I'm 60, it's not going to stop now. And if I live to see 70 or 75, it won't stop then. If I'm not at war, if I don't have my sword then, I will have failed. And it's not just fought out in the culture. It's not just fought out in city council meetings. It's fought in my house with my children. As I fight for their souls. As I discipline my daughters. As we pray our prayers of repentance. 
as I stop the events of a day and I say, okay, now we're going to pray and read the Bible. It's fought here. As I work with you and, and we work together in this church and as I push on you and teach you the Word of God. And it is fought out in the culture. But it never ends. It doesn't stop. And in the end, we all become either a victor or a captive. And the victors receive their crown when they die. And God takes them to glory. Caleb was a victor. He was a winner. He was a fighter. And we must be also. Caleb was a loving, gift-giving father. And this one's a little out of, out of source with the others, but it was in the story, it's in the narrative, and it's beautiful. He's taking one of the cities, and he says, to the man who takes that city, I will give my daughter. He recognizes a man who can lead the troops to take that city is going to be a man who can lead his daughter and be worthy of her. So one of his nephews, I think, takes the city. And true to his word, he gives his daughter in marriage to this man. And the daughter goes to her husband and she says, You know, Dad's given us this nice place to live and this nice property, but it would be nice to have these springs that are up here on this piece of ground over here because that's a lot of water coming our way, and that's good for the, for the crops and the animals. And her husband says, Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Ask him. So she goes to her father, and he loves his daughter. She says, Dad, can I have the springs? Over here? And Caleb says, Oh, yeah, I love you. You can have the springs. Just get me some grandbabies pretty soon. <laughs> Fathers, love your children. And along with birthday presents and holiday gifts and along with springs of water, give them those gifts that are most beneficial to them that you're supposed to give them. Give them the fear and admonition of the Lord. Give them love that includes discipline. Don't exasperate them. You know, that, that verse is in there for a reason. I think fathers must be prone to exasperating their kids or tempted by it. Don't exasperate your children. Love them and give them good gifts. Now, this has been the Father's Day meditation, and it's mostly been for men, but I do want to say just a couple of words for, for mothers and children, which we all are. A closing note. God himself is our supreme, the supreme Lord and Father. And as such, we don't treat him as common. We offer him honor, obeisance, obedience, and love because he deserves it. Even in my sermon, when I write this out, when it comes to a pronoun where it refers to God, what, what do I use a small letter or a capital letter? You understand? It's in us. It should be in us to treat him with a special honor and respect. Now, just as Jesus is, as the husband of the church, is a type in marriage, 
or just, I'm sorry, just as, ju- just as the husband to the bride in a marriage is a type of Jesus and the church, so it's also true that the father in a home is a type of Lord in his householding, household. He's demonstrating the archetype, God the Father. He is the demonstration of, of God the Father on earth. And you mothers and children, daughters and sons, understand that in his place as type, as Lord in his household, you should offer him honor and obeisance and obedience and love. I don't know how you do this. Everywhere is different. People have different ways of doing this. Certainly obedience. But I don't know what you do. He gets to the end of the table chair. I don't know how you set it up in your house. There are ways that, that show honor to the father of a house. And you should show honor with your life and with your actions. It should be something demonstrable as you do it. And by doing this, you will fulfill the commands of God and you will illustrate His glory as the heavenly archetype. People will come in and say, Whoa, the Father is honored. What's this all about? And you'll say, God is our heavenly Father. Give Him honor. And frankly, if you did this, it would be a real nice Father's Day gift to Him. Caleb was faithful. Men, fathers, future fathers, be faithful. Learn from those who've gone on before us. And may we all submit ourselves to the Father in heaven as we ought to do. Let's stand.